the distinct pleasure this morning of introducing our guest teacher. Uh, Pastor Jeremiah Gomez is with us from Heritage Church, which is an amazing, vibrant Wesleyan church. So it's the same denomination and district that we are in, in the Quad Cities of Illinois and Iowa. So they are reaching tons of people, thousands of people in the Quad Cities uh, area. So Jeremiah is their executive teaching pastor, so he gets to teach and preach. He does a lot of writing. Um, most importantly, the best role of his life, I'm assuming, is that he is uh, Sarah's husband, and then he has two beautiful kids, Jubilee and Zachariah, which are beautiful names for kids, I think. Um, so this morning, Jeremiah is with us. He's going to continue our series called Backstory. Something we found out through his biography, but also some time together this morning, is that Jeremiah believes that the sixth love language is sarcasm. <laughs> and so he's going to fit right in. So let's give a warm Northridge welcome to Jeremiah Gomez. Hey, friends. Northridge, oh, it's so good to get to be with you today. Uh, when I first received the invitation to come spend some time with you, I was so grateful and humbled. Uh, I love your story and some of the things that I've heard God is doing in your midst to, to be coming up on 10 years of celebrating God's good faithfulness is just incredible. And I love gathering in spaces like this where during the week, you know, so much of this space that we're in even right now is ordinary space. There's, there's the ordinary stuff of life that's happening. And then when you, Northridge, gather, empowered by the Spirit of God, worshiping the name of the risen Jesus, this ordinary space becomes, becomes sacred space. It becomes space where God himself is dwelling with us and wanting to break out among us. It's true for people who are joining online as well. That ordinary space of a living room, when we gather together and we declare the goodness of God and we seek him first, that ordinary space becomes sacred space. And I don't want you to lose the gift that coming into a place like this that so regularly is the ordinary space of the good stuff of life. But when you gather here on Sunday mornings, become sacred space where God can do anything. Don't ever take that for granted. Now, a, a couple of things, as, as uh, uh, was just mentioned, I get to be Sarah's husband and Jubilee and Zechariah's dad. That's the great privilege and joy of my life. Uh, I, I get to serve the church in, in a number of different ways. And, and because of that, I've gotten to, to attend or be part of worship in a number of different spaces. And I've got to tell you, this is the first worship space that I've ever been in that has two penalty boxes as soon as you walk in. Like, I don't know, I don't know what you're trying to communicate. Like, is that for the pastor? You know, you get five minutes for checking, ten minutes for a sermon overage. I'm not sure how that works. But uh, this is Wisconsin, right? So, like, hockey jokes are okay? I can't tell. Okay. All right. So <laughs> we'll do that. I know it's a basketball court, but still. Anyway. All right. So we have, you have been in this series of conversations called Backstory that Pastor Brent launched last week where you look at perhaps a, a well-known passage of Scripture, some story of the Bible, but then you actually come at it and say, what's the backstory of what's going on there? And I want you to understand that, that one of the keys to unlocking what 
what the backstory of any Scripture is. One of the keys to unlocking the value and hope and power of Scripture for us is a simple truth, but it's one that will change everything about how we interact with the stuff of Scripture and even one another and gathering in spaces and moments like this. It's a simple key, but it will unlock so much for you of what Scripture has, especially when you're looking at the backstory of what's going on. That simple key is this truth. It's that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the collection of 66 different books written by about 40 different human authors, all with a united and unified story that points us to Jesus. What we mean by Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures is that each of these Scriptures point to the person and the power, the authority, the goodness, the wonder, the activity, the aliveness of Jesus. And so, we can't understand the backstory of what's happening in a passage of Scripture unless we understand first that it is pointing in somehow, some way to Jesus as its ultimate fulfillment. In fact, uh, you know, one of the reasons that we gather on Sunday mornings is because Sunday is the day of resurrection. We gather on Sunday mornings, whether we recognize it or not, is as a declaration of saying, Jesus is alive. And He's alive today. He's alive in us. He's alive in this place. Now, I want to pause here for a second, because Northridge, I am preaching a lot better than you are responding so far, okay? So, like, it's like, amen is helpful, go for it, you know, get after it, any of that kind of stuff is going to be super helpful, all right? So, Jesus is alive. Okay, that's great. Perfect. He is alive. And even he himself, after his resurrection, after, after a couple of his friends and followers had seen him, we find him on the road with a group of other followers, and they're frustrated because the whole Jesus thing hasn't worked out the way that they thought it should. And we see that Jesus, on this road to a place called Emmaus, he begins to talk to these followers of his, his friends, who don't even recognize him yet, and he reminds them, it says, that all of the Scriptures, he, he, he broke open the Scriptures and talked to them about how the law and the prophets were found, finding their fulfillment in Him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scripture. Jesus actually said it Himself in a different part of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, toward the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, He says this to His first friends and followers, those in proximity to Him. And I think it's something that you and I need to hear today if we're going to dig into and get the most out of the backstory conversation that we're having. He said this, He said, Do not misunderstand why I have come. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, no. I came to fulfill their purpose. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish what you and I might call the Old Testament. The Scriptures that Jesus is referring to primarily are the, are the Old Testament, which is the story of God at work in the world as people are waiting for rescue. 
And he's saying, I didn't come to get rid of that. I actually came to fulfill them, to accomplish their purpose. The Bible's written in, in two parts, what we call the Old Testament, which is the, the space and place and time before Jesus where they are expecting a rescuer, and the New Testament, which is the part with Jesus as He brings His rescuing power into the world as the kingdom of God and His goodness begins to break out all along the way and among us. So, this morning, we are going to be, this, none of, this is not the backstory of Scripture that we're going to dig into yet. It's a long introduction we're getting there, okay? This morning, we're going to be in a passage of Scripture, in a story that, if you've been around the church for a while, might be really familiar to you. And I want to invite you to press in and listen with fresh ears, as though you've never heard it before, if you can do that. Which means if you're not familiar with the Scriptures and the stuff of church, you're, you're beautifully positioned to step in and discover some amazing things about what God might say to you in your current circumstance, to us, even as we're here. We're going to be in a book called Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, chapters 14 and 15. And um, this story, this before Jesus, but expecting a rescuer part of the Bible in Exodus is really substantial. Again, it's a story you may be familiar with. It's called the parting of the Red Sea. It's when the Israelites, a group of people called by God for special purpose, find themselves facing an impossible and impassable obstacle. And they are desperate for God to move because it's the only way that they're going to find a way through. And He does what only God can do. But we're going we're gonna to come at this from a slightly different perspective. What we need to know about the Exodus, remember Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Exodus is just a word that means exit. It's a, an indicator of God bringing rescue so His people could exit out of a dark and oppressive place. And so, in the story that we're looking at, there's been this group of people who have been called by God for special purpose. He's indicated that they are His unique people who are going to bring the goodness and power of God into the world around them. And then they find themselves lost and they feel forgotten. You see, they find themselves in service, in slavery, in a dark kingdom of the world called Egypt. And the dark king of this dark kingdom has a title called Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has taken it upon himself to crush and oppress these people who've been marked by God for something phenomenal and important and significant and substantial. But generations pass and they find themselves crushed under the thumb of the dark king, Pharaoh. And they wonder if God is at work, if He sees them, if He hears them, if He even remembers His promise that they would be about something wonderful and powerful. We're going to pick up their story here in a moment. But before we do, I have a question for you. Has there ever been a circumstance in your life? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you felt like you had no good options? Has there ever been a space or a place, a moment in your life where you felt like your back was up against the wall and you didn't have any good options? You might have three options, but none of them are any good. Now, I know some of you are like, yes, I drove into church today and that is where I'm at. But think about it. There are those moments, those places, maybe it's in a relationship 
where we are faced with the idea that we are going to be stuck in a loveless, intimacy-less relationship, or we're going to choose divorce, or we're going to choose some other option, and there are no good options. We have this happen when it comes to medical stuff from time to time, when we get the terrible, upsetting, life-changing news that we get to choose now between palliative care or hospice or some kind of, of procedure that may or may not work and it will in, hinder our quality of life. No good option. We see it when it comes sometimes if you have adult children and you're watching as your kids make decision after decision that seem to be messing the whole trajectory of their life. There's nothing you can do. There are no good options for how you interact with that. Sometimes the no good options places for us, they're ordinary spaces. It's the no good options place where we, we hate the idea of Monday coming because once again, we're going to have to wake up and drag ourselves to that soul-crushing place of work that we go to. And we know we either have to show up at work or not eat. There are no good options. What do we do when we find ourselves in a space of no good options? Sometimes the no good options spaces, well, they seem like they're huge and significant in the moment, but as they pass by, we realize they were just momentary, a thing that, that the Lord was working in, even though it seemed impossible at the time. I remember when I was just a young driver, brand, pretty brand new, I was about 17, and, uh, and at the time I was driving what we affectionately called the Egg, which was a three-cylinder, two-door, red Chevy Metro that looked and sounded exactly like a lawnmower. And we would pack, it was egg-shaped, that's why we called it uh, an egg, and we, we would pack uh, my high school friends in this car and go back and forth to school and whatever else we were doing. Well, on this particular day, we were on our way to high school, and not too far from the entrance to the high school, when we were involved in a multiple car collision. It, it wasn't... It wasn't super bad, but it was bad enough that, like, the ambulances came and carted us away. And I remember uh, the, ambulance, the ambulance showing up and strapping me onto a backboard and then putting me in the back of the ambulance. Now, if you've never been strapped to a backboard, you've got to understand, it is a strange sensation. They strap down your head and they strap down other, like, limbs, and you're kind of surfing on your back. I discovered, I don't know why I'm going to tell you this, but I discovered uh, that I am a, I'm a no-neck size on the cervical collar. Like, that's a real size, all right? And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, that's, that's right, Jeremiah, that's good. So, but I, so they put their no-neck collar on me, strapped me down, and took me to the ER. And uh, it was a strange thing because they left me in the ER waiting to be assessed, and the nurses and doctors came by, and they looked at me, and they, they said, well, you know, we're going to have to run some tests. So they, they went and did that, but I was still strapped down to this backboard, not able to move. It's the strangest thing, and it felt like one hour, and then another, and then another. And meanwhile, my friends who had been in the car with me, they're coming by to check out with me as they leave, because their parents have come, and they're free to go. And it's like, see ya. And I'm stuck, strapped to this backboard. And finally, uh, one of the physicians comes in and he says, uh, we, we've seen something, we need to talk to your mom first before we go any further, so just wait here. And I was like, great, what else am I going to do, right? I'm strapped, of course, sure, I'll just lay here. So eventually my mom is able to get there from work and she comes into the room and the doctor comes, it's a very, very busy center, and he says, so we've found something on some of the scans, we need your permission to run some extra tests, I don't want to say more than that, but we're just going to go check it out. 
and my mom signs whatever, and they wheel me away into the big, scary, clunky machines and, you know, do whatever tests that they're going to do. And they still have me immobilized as they're doing all of this. Finally, the doctor comes back into the waiting room. I can hear them close the, the little curtain that magically gives privacy in this big open room. And, and he is, it's a, he's a busy doctor in a very, very busy center. And so I remember kind of him coming in. I imagine, I couldn't really see him. I imagine him looking at my chart with all of the stuff that's in there. But I will never forget how he said, so we found something on his scans. It looks like it's probably cancer. We'll know more later. And he left. That sound somebody over here made, <gasps> that was the sound my mom made. My mom got this look on her face, moms, you get it, even though you don't think you have it, which is, I am terrified, but I don't want my kid to know that I'm terrified. She got up and she left the room. I knew she was leaving to go call some friends to, to pray, but also to, to think through what some options were and to cry a little bit. And so we were there, and in that space, I had no idea what was, what was happening, but I got, want you to know it felt like there were no good options. All we could do is wait. They ran more tests, took a while, and eventually they came back into the room and said, Jeremiah, I don't know what we saw, but whatever was there is gone now. Now, I don't know if they had a problem with their initial test or if God worked a miracle. Ultimately, it didn't matter to me because it sure felt like a miracle in the moment, right? Suddenly, this thing that, led, that had me held back and it felt like there were no good options, it was just a momentary thing behind us, but I was reminded of God's goodness and power and faithfulness. My mom had an army of people praying for God to do something incredible in that moment. I'm convinced to this day that he did. Now, the reason I share that with you is that some of us today find ourselves in a place where it seems like there are no good options. We're strapped to the backboards of life, and we're waiting. Is God going to show up? Is he going to do something for us in the way that we know he can and we think he should? All right, so let's get back to our story in Scripture. You guys thought I forgot about the Bible, didn't you? <laughs> so here we find these people of Israel stuck in slavery. The dark powers of the world are on full display through the tyrant king Pharaoh who's killing them by acts of genocide, who's crushing them under forced labor, who's denying their, their rights and humanity and the image of God in them. They cry out for generation after generation, and finally we find that God is moving on their behalf. Though they thought they had been forgotten, God actually had been moving behind the scenes in a great and powerful way to do something that only He could do. And it's as though He says, now is the time. I'm going to move in rescue for you. And He gives them a promised rescuer, deliverer, named Moses. And in the story, Moses shows up and stuff gets harder. Well, that's the, that's the message you wanted this morning, right? So glad I came to church on this beautiful Sunday summer morning. Stuff got harder for them. But then eventually, as God moves and works in power, the people are released by the dark king Pharaoh to go and worship God in the wilderness, which is all that they've been asking to do. And he says, fine, go and worship. 
And as they are leaving and out into the, into the spaces of, of worship, and they get there because God moved on their behalf in powerful way after powerful way after powerful way, completely obliterating all of the false gods of Egypt. I wish we had time to dig into some of that today. We don't have time for it. Just take my word on it. Dig into the scriptures. It's amazing. Now, they are out moving away. We as the reader looking in know they're going out to worship God in the desert. They are never coming back. They are not about to head back to Egypt for slavery. As they're out there, Pharaoh realizes what he has done. He gathers his, his little you know, advisors together and he says, oh no, we just sent the entirety of our workforce out into the desert. Who now are we going to crush and kill? We had better get them back. So he mobilizes the equivalent of the first armored division. The most powerful country in the world sends out the most powerful army in the world at the time to chase after a ragtag group of slaves. Now put yourself in the position of the people of Israel. They're out in the desert. Their leader Moses says, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. So they go and they go and they go until they come up to this great big body of water. And this great big body of water that they're, that they're looking at, they cannot get through on their own. The problem is now the full armies of Pharaoh are coming behind them. They have a choice. They can choose death by drowning, or they can choose death by the armies of Pharaoh. Or they have a third option. The scriptures record that they could move off to the side, but if they do that, there's a whole group of other armies who are hell-bent on their destruction. Death by drowning, death by Pharaoh, death by somebody else. Sounds like no good options, if you ask me. And this is where they find themselves. There is no way out but death. They begin to grumble among themselves. They're pretty upset about their newly elected leader, Moses. And they're telling him he's doing a terrible job. It would have been just better for them to hang out in Egypt and die there instead of dying in the desert by the sea what they tell him. And I know if you've been in the church for a while, you read this story and you go, man, those people, little faith that they had. Now, if I had been there, I would have modeled trust and obedience. Now, let me just say, I don't, I don't know you super well, but if your Facebook posts are similar to those of other people I know, I know how you view some of the leaders in your life, okay? I know that you and I, we would have been right there with them calling for Moses' removal. But here we find Moses picking up the story in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Here's what he says as they're crying out. He says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. This is an incredible, incredible statement from Moses because here's what I want you to know. When Moses makes this statement, he has no idea what's about to happen next. He doesn't know what's coming. All he knows is that God is powerful, that God is active on behalf of these people. He is for them. That's what he knows. And so he says, 
Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. And then he continues, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to be still. Moses doesn't know how this is going to work out. He just knows that it will. The word for still there is actually the same word that means to carve out a place to wait. It's like carving out a safe waiting space. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is what Moses declares to the people. So then the story continues, and this is the part that you may be a little more familiar with. The story continues that as Pharaoh's army approaches the people of Israel who are facing sure death in the sea ahead of them, and they can hear the approach of Pharaoh's great army behind them, that suddenly, powerfully, God works supernaturally to hold back the armies of Pharaoh. And then an east wind begins to blow. And the wind begins to cause the sea ahead of the people to come up into these great big heaps. I love this part of the story because here's what you need to know. We know today geographically about all of the bodies of water in the region that we're talking about. And there is no body of water. I'm convinced this story is true. But what you need to know is there's no body of water in the ancient Near East, in this part of the world, that can both drown an entire army, spoiler alert, that's coming, and is shallow enough to be blown apart in one night of an east wind blowing. There is no body of water that fits both of those descriptions. All I know is this. What God has done in this moment is absolutely impossible. And it reminds us that ours is the God of the impossible. That when we find ourselves stuck up against the wall as though we have no good options, we see God doing the impossible. Now, I know we're tempted to look at that and go, look at what God did. He did the impossible because he loves these people and he's for them. Isn't that amazing? And there is part of that. But again, I want you to, to sit in the mindset of the people as they're observing this. Because you see, for the ancient Israelites, for the ancient people of the day right there, they had a very particular view of big bodies of water. That water was a thing to fear. Not because they couldn't swim, but that water was a thing to fear because it was a shared belief that water was the place where chaos and death resided. That's why it's so significant, if you're familiar with the beginning of our story, the Scriptures say that the Spirit of God was there hovering over the surface of the waters. God was bringing light and life to a place of chaos and death. So as far as the people are concerned, they find that God has made a path forward. But it is a path literally through what they see as chaos and death. Again, you're so glad you came for this uplifting message, right? Don't worry, we're getting there. But what do you do? I mean, the people 
They don't know what to do. And I think for some of us, we are surprised that when there are no good options and the God of the universe moves on our behalf, that sometimes the path He opens for us is the path through chaos and death. In fact, our path to the promise is often carved through chaos and death. Watch what the Scriptures say about what happens next. It says, "...the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground." with a wall of water, chaos and death, on their right, and a wall of water, chaos and death, on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and Moses, His servant. Their path to the promise was through chaos and death. Our path to the promise is often carved through chaos and death. And we don't know what to do with that. Some of us, when we see God finally open up a path for us, the people were wise. They knew this was their best way forward. Some of us, when we've been praying for breakthrough, we are disappointed with God. We're frustrated and offended that the path He opens up for us is one that seems, instead of being easy and straightforward with no challenge, it seems the path He opens to promise is one that's carved through the very center of chaos and death. Jesus is no stranger to the realities of chaos and death in our life. Jesus actually brought us to the fulfillment of God's promise. Again, part of why we gather on Sunday is because Jesus is alive. The aliveness of Jesus, the power that He brings, the way that He carved a path for us was a way of chaos and death called the cross. And yet, He now opens this path for us so we can experience the fullness of His promise. We don't know what to do when it seems that there are no good options, and then the option that's available to us looks as though it's going to require us to walk through chaos and death. The people, as they walked to their rescue, they weren't just afraid of these towers of water falling down and causing them to drown. They were walking through in full awareness that somehow, miraculously, God had made a path through chaos and death itself. And the only way through was if they trusted Him with every step, another step, another step, another step toward rescue, even though it felt, I'm sure, as though chaos and death could come raining down on them at any turn. This is our invitation, friends, to know that God is faithful, that He doesn't ask us to walk through these places of chaos and death on our own, but that Jesus has already walked that path, that He goes with us, and He is the one who sticks with us closer than a friend and, or closer than a brother. That He is the one who purchased our freedom and forgave us our sins. He is the one who transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son the one who loves us so much. The people of Israel were literally being transferred from the kingdom of darkness in Pharaoh to the kingdom of light where God reigns supreme as they enter the space of promise. 
Our path to the promise is often carved through chaos and death, but, but, are you ready? God brings order and life. Very good. Thank you. God brings order in life. Jesus made a way. He is the path through chaos and death. He is our path to the promise. Jesus, in His life and resurrection, reminds us God can be trusted. God is powerful. He is for us, and He is working on our behalf, just as it was true for Moses and the people of Israel, that all they knew that God was for them, and He was working on their behalf, and so Moses could say, just wait and see what God does. So we can hold fast and know God is active and working on our behalf, that He is for you and for me. Yes, it seems through the Scriptures that for the people of Israel, for Jesus, for us, the path to the promise often involves chaos and death. He brings order and life. He can be trusted. So I wonder, I wonder where you are today. I wonder what active thing in your world seems dark, seems chaotic, seems as though death itself is there. And where you are desperate to see promise fulfilled, where you wonder if you will ever know life to the full, where you wonder if God can really be kept true to His Word, where He says, I place the lonely in families, where you wonder if it can really be true that you have a unique purpose that you alone get to live out for the sake of something greater than yourself, where you wonder if that broken family relationship can ever be restored, where you wonder if work is going to be that soul-crushing thing day after day, where you wonder if you can live in the space of loss any longer, where you wonder if the dream of your heart will ever be fulfilled. I wonder if in that space, Jesus Himself is inviting you to a path forward, not a path that you ever would have chosen, but the path that He has opened, a path that, yes, it may look like chaos, yes, it may look like death, because here's what I'm convinced of, that in order for you and me to experience the fullness of life that God has for us, He consistently invites us first to die to die to our dreams, to die to our expectations, to die to the way that we think things should be, to die to our egos, to die to what we think the president should or should not be doing, to die to what we think should or should not be happening around us, to die to what we have built because His way is greater, His light is, is truer, His life is fuller. But we must choose to trust. Where does it feel for you today like the only option is a path through chaos, through death? Following this experience where God brought the people through this place of death and chaos, where He brought them into life, where they saw an impossible thing happen, And then another impossible thing happened as the armies of Egypt were overcome, where they saw firsthand the goodness and power of God. We come across a hymn that they wrote, a hymn that that they were to sing as often as they could, reminding them of what they had seen and participated in. We don't have time, you're welcome, to read through the whole thing. It's about a whole chapter of Scripture. But I do want to read one part of that song over us. One, one, one of the lines there, it says this. It says, in, uh, in your unfailing love, God, you will lead the people 
you have redeemed. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are marked with His blood, you are redeemed by His life. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, God, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Even when it seems there are no good options, even when it feels like no matter what, we're going to have to walk through a path marked, it seems, by chaos and death, God leads in unfailing love. God offers strength and guidance. He wants us to know the way to walk in. He has not asked us to figure it out on our own, but He leads us there. He has given us His Spirit. We can dwell with Him, the Scripture calls us to. We will, you will guide us to your holy dwelling. He is our carved out place of safety. There's one more verse. There's, there's one more um, passage I, w- I want to read to us. It's a quote from Jesus Himself as He is about to ascend back to the Father. He's lived a perfect life. He's ministered in power. He's been raised from the dead, crucified for us, and now He's ready to ascend. And this is what He says. Listen to these words. He says, all authority, say all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not just some of it, all authority in heaven and on earth, he says, has been given to me, to Jesus himself. That means that there is no space in this world where you are operating under someone else's authority and that authority isn't borrowed from Jesus himself. It means that Jesus has all authority. He gets to say. He gets to lead. He gets to declare by His life and death and ministry and resurrection and ascension and intercession and readiness to return. He alone gets to say. He alone gets to lead the path of our life. There is no authority figure in your life where the authority of Jesus doesn't supersede them. There is no authority in your life that Jesus, authority figure in your life, that their power isn't borrowed from Jesus and He Himself will hold them accountable for how they use that power. It's also true for you and me in the spaces where we hold authority, that we'll be held accountable for how we use the authority of Jesus. Now, that's free. So, hearing this, after Jesus has said, friends, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, I want you to hear one more time some words that we read earlier, but this time I want you to hear them. As you hold before Holy Spirit of the risen Jesus, the place in your life that feels as though it's marked by chaos and death today. As you hold before the Spirit of the risen Jesus, the reality that you need Him to make a way where there seems to be no way. As you hold before Him a place of heartache and frustration and worry and anxiety. I want you to hear these words, not spoken by some miracle-working prophet in the ancient Near East. Moses was great, but he wasn't Jesus. 
I want you to hear these words spoken by Holy Spirit to your heart in your circumstance. Jesus himself, the one with all authority, says this, do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. I, the Lord, will fight for you. You need only to be still. Do not be afraid. I, the Lord, will fight for you. You need only to be still. So, friends, where are you going to choose courage over fear, confidence over worry, stillness over empty activity, confident? You need only to be still. Let's pray together. God, we hold before you these, these sacred places in our lives where we're reminded of our desperation to see you move and work. These no-good options spaces where we need you to be the one who moves on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for reminding us of these, not, not so that we'll hold them in anxiety, but so that we will hold them in faithful trust before you. These, our, these are our waiting spaces. These are the places, God, where we feel as though we're lost without you, where there's chaos and death on every side, and yet we say, we will be still because you are the God of life and order. So bring your life and order into our places that feel like chaos and death. We trust you. We hold ourselves still before you. Lead us. Sustain us. In Jesus' name.